This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 99 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is Helen Mirren, the revered 71-year-old actress who has an Oscar, a Tony, and four Emmys to her name, and who could land her fifth Oscar nomination, this time in the Best Supporting Actress category, for her work in the March release, Eye in the Sky, in which she plays a British colonel in charge of a top-secret but morally questionable drone program. Over the course of our conversation, Marin and I discuss how a stage-trained actress who loved performing in the theater wound up primarily known for her work on screens big and small, why she felt anxious about her prospects as a young actress, and how a fortune teller was able to reassure her that things would work out in due time, what stands out in her memory about some of her most memorable projects over the last several decades, including the risque film Caligula, the period pieces The Madness of King George and Gosford Park, and the seven groundbreaking Prime Suspect TV series, her late-blooming success, how she came to play Queen Elizabeth II in the film The Queen and the play The Audience, both of which have brought her massive acclaim, and what she feels is the one piece of unfinished business in her career. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ms. Mern, thank you very much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. So to begin with, we always ask first here, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Well, my dad was a London cabbie, actually. Well, he was a professional um, musician and then he became a London cabbie. And my mum was a mum, basically, a housewife, as they used to be in those days. And I was raised in both in London and in a little place called Southend-on-Sea in Essex. Mm. When and why did, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this, Ilyena Lydia Vasilinlievna Mironov <laughs> become Helen Mirren? Well, actually, I, well, I was born uh, Helen Mironov. Okay. What you just said, Ilyena Lydia Mironovna was, was my, uh, Vasilievna Mironov was my, the Russian version of my name because my father was, was Russian, was gotcha. born in Russia. My original surname was Mironov. 
and that was changed when I was about seven, mm -hmm. eight, something like that. As a kid, did you go to the movies or watch TV or attend the no, theater? No, I was completely... I didn't grow up with a television set. My parents couldn't afford a television set. They didn't get one until after I'd left home and gone to college. And we didn't go to the movies because, again, it was a financial yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, difficulty for us. I mean, I had been to the movies. I remember my parents were... They lived in a working-class world of working-class financial level, but... Well, anyway, the the movie that they took me to see was the Bolshoi Ballet, oh, yeah. which makes you understand <laughs> sort of people there were. But I did remember uh, when I once interviewed you previously, you spoke about just the profound impact that it had on you of seeing a particular theatrical production at a very quite early age. Yes, well, there were two theatrical productions that really influenced me and made me want to become a performer or an actor. One made me want to become a performer, mm -hmm. and the other one wanted me to become an actress. The first was when I was about seven or eight. The seaside town I was growing up in was the equivalent of Coney Island. Mm -hmm. It was that sort mm -hmm. of a holiday, sort of day-tripper kind of thing. And there was a pier, which happens to be the longest pier in the world, mm -hmm. in South End-on-Sea. And at the end of the pier, they would have a variety show. And it's what they call the end of the pier show. I don't know if that exists in, in America, but certainly in, in England it does. It's a sort of variety show. And you have a comedian and you have dancing girls and you have a singer and, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was about seven, I think it was the first time I'd ever sat in a space where the lights go down and the lights go up on the stage and people come on and they do things. And I was absolutely transported. To this day, I remember the comedian making me f literally fall off my seat with laughter. <laughs> the dancing girls, I remember them with their blue veils. They came on and did a sort of dancey number. And I just thought it was all the most wonderful, magical, fantastic thing I'd ever seen. So that made me want to become a performer, right. be up there on sure. the stage, you know. Well, there wasn't by nature a show-off at all, but mm -hmm. I just loved that, that magical world up there. And then I saw a Shakespearean production of Hamlet when I was about 14, I would guess. And maybe that was... I hadn't been to the theatre in between those two times. I, I, well, I don't think... What brought think, that about? What was it? My mother just decided it was an amateur production. It wasn't a professional production. It was probably really bad, but I think my mum thought that it would be good for me to see it, you mm -hmm. know, and, and she took me and, uh, and she was right. I was, again, absolutely transported by it. Maybe I was more 12 or 13. I think, I don't think I was 14 yet. And that was also the, probably the beginning of your interest in Shakespearean. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and my interest, which is the most important thing for any actor, is, is one's interest in partaking in, a, in the world of the imagination. Mm -hmm. So when did you actually first try acting, even if it wasn't yet sort of a serious study or, or performance or whatever? And then how did that become a more serious thing before pre-obviously National Youth Theatre? What was what went on in those years? Well, after that experience of, of watching Shakespeare, I then, my parents had one of those big copies of Shakespeare where the print is really small. <laughs> it was the complete works of Shakespeare. Right. And a tiny, tiny print. And I went and, I've, and it hadn't been opened for sort of probably 50 years, you know. <laughs> and I, I went and found this book and started reading 
Shakespeare. I didn't read the whole of plays, but I'd read a speech or a scene, and I got very, very excited by it, by these fantastical characters, you know, Joan of Arc, Caliban, you know, Queen Margaret, Henry's Ophelia, you know, all, I guess the first one I went to was probably Hamlet. But in my school, which didn't have a drama program, it's not like nowadays, you know, schools have drama programs. They didn't have a drama program, but what they did have was a little competition between classes, that each class, on their own, without the help of a teacher, would have to prepare a Shakespeare scene. And this was parallel to my suddenly discovering Shakespeare. So I got busy and sort of took over the preparation <laughs> of the scene for my class that year. And it was a scene from The Tempest. Ah, the famous, which you would later do, right? I think. Which I later did. Yes. I later played Prospero. But that time I elected right. to play Caliban because right. I thought Caliban was the most romantic, soulful, painful character. And that, that, because of that wonderful speech, that, you know, this aisle is full of noises. So I performed Caliban in our scene, and, and we won the Shakespeare Cup. Ah, that's great. There was a little egg cup, like a silver <laughs> egg cup called the Shakespeare Cup. So we won it, and that, that certainly began my interest in drama and, and in performance. And then, and then quite soon after that, maybe a year or two later, my English teacher introduced me to the, the existence of the National Youth Theatre, which I didn't know anything about. So as this became a more serious part of your life, I understand that your father was not terribly enthusiastic about this being a, a longer-term direction for you? Or? No, n neither my mother nor my father, absolutely rightfully, thought that it was a silly, romantic dream. And, you know, they, they had no money, my parents. There, there, was no, there was nothing for any of, any of us to fall back on. And I really admire my parents for this. They were very, very supportive and fierce about each one of us, my sister and my brother and myself, being financially independent and being able to make our own way in the world financially. And they'd come through the Great Depression of the 30s in their youth. So they felt that the teaching profession was something where there would always be a need for teachers and you would always be able to get a job. So they very much encouraged us to go into teacher's training and into the teacher's profession. And I did, in fact, train for three years to be a teacher. And that was pre-National Youth Theatre? No, that was sort of around the same time. Same time? You yes. could do it yeah, right. Yes, yes. Because the National Youth Theatre you did in, in your school or college holidays. Gotcha. And I know that you were a hit once you started that. I've read about the Anthony and Cleopatra, where you were Cleopatra, and I think that's what led to an agent for the first time. Absolutely, yes. So from that where you're getting this great feedback, you're enjoying it, what are you thinking you can do with this afterwards? Ultimate dream was to be a, a stage actor? Yes, yes. In my, in my early years, I would say the first five years of my career, maybe more, I just wanted to be a, a, a stage actor, and I wanted to be a Shakespearean actor. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a classical actor. It was the hardest, it was the most challenging, but it was also the most engaging. And, and I knew I had a lot to learn. So I was very lucky that I was invited to join the Royal Shakespeare Company very early in my career and got to play major roles with that company, you know, quite, quite early in my career, actually. What was the 
introduction of screen acting. How did that first come about and, and did you feel equipped to do it? Well, actually quite early, when, when I was at the, um, at the Royal Shakespeare Company in the first four years, I was asked to do two films. I was asked at Peter Hall, who had run the company, he was a famous theatre mm -hmm. director, was doing a film of Midsummer Night's Dream and he asked me to be in that film. And then I was also asked to do a film with James Mason, the great James Mason, yeah. which was shot in Australia by a famous film director, Michael Powell. This was Age uh, of Consent? Yes, yes, which was the Age of Consent. And so somehow I carved out the time, and I can't quite remember how that happened, but I, I was given the time off to go to Australia to shoot Age of Consent. They were both, you know, it was a curiosity, it was interesting, but it really wasn't my passion. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was doing, but that didn't really matter because I didn't really wasn't that, you know, concerned about it anyway. <laughs> and then about, I don't know, about six years into my career, maybe maybe less, I suddenly realized that there was this whole world that I knew nothing about, and that wonderful world of film acting. I mean, at the time, the British film industry was so awful. I mean, it was really? just ghastly. <laughs> they were making you know, you were, one was over the sort of Saturday night, Sunday morning, you know, this, this sporting life. Yes. You know, that era of neo-realistic working class kind of subjects was gone. Yeah, right. we, they'd moved on from there. And they were just making awful, crude, <laughs> disgusting comedies that Donald Trump would have been <laughs> absolutely a, a star of. Right. Those sorts of things. And um, I just, it, it was... It was you know, there was nothing there for me at Who all. Was, it was like Glenda Jackson was getting all the parts that Yes, point, right? and Glenda, absolutely. Yeah. If, if there were any roles in any interesting films going at all at that right. time, uh, Glenda would have them, right. not me. <laughs> right. and, uh, or Maggie Smith, of right. course. So, you know, I suddenly saw there, there was this world of acting in front of the camera that I knew nothing about. And so I sort of deliberately moved away from theatre, stopped engaging myself for six, nine months and let myself be open to working on camera. And, of course, at that time in England, all the best work on camera was on television. Okay. I was used to say the film industry is alive and well and living on television in England, <laughs> which at that time it was. Right. Once you started working in film and television, I mean, it seems like it was pretty steady, a lucky man, long goodbye, on and on and on. And actually high-caliber filmmakers and collaborators. But the thing that I recall reading was that you never felt quite comfortable or confident, no, right? No, I didn't. I was very unconfident. I, I knew nothing. I was just hopeless, you know. I mean, poor Peter Weir when I did Mosquito Coast. And uh, because up to Mosquito Coast, whenever I was doing anything on camera, I was so profoundly self-conscious and I thought, I'm going to use Mosquito Coast as a way of losing my self-consciousness and trying to be free, mm -hmm. because that's the most difficult thing in front of a camera. But, of course, in trying to be free, I was rarely on camera because I'd be <laughs> off, off the screen, you know. But also, it was a great lesson watching Harrison Ford yeah. work. Great lesson, because he understood the technique of filmmaking so well. He was so in control of it. And I watched him and I thought, that's your next step, mm -hmm. is to learn what he's learned. How did you end up at an Indian palm reader? This was a great 
story, as I recall. What yes, was that? that was well. That was in my early days in London. You know, when you're, I think the most difficult time in your in one's life is your early twenties right. because you don't have the advantage of being a dumb teenager anymore. You've got to be an adult, right. and you don't know where your life is carrying you. So I was very anxious and mm. and unhappy and. And so I went to this palm reader, th- hoping that maybe he'd tell me that, don't worry, you'll be very rich and famous very soon. <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't say that at all. But it, w- it was a great cathartic experience because I realised, actually, I didn't want to know what was going to happen with my life. I just wanted to live it and for it to take me by surprise. If there was one little nugget of what he said that proved to be the case, it was basically that you would be successful, but you're going to have to wait, right? That was... He did. He said, you'll be very, you'll have success, but you won't be very, very successful until you're in your 40s. And which was more or less... Which was more or correct. less unbelievably true. Yeah. Unbelievably true. One thing that I wonder for somebody who, as you say, was pretty self-conscious in front of the camera, not that confident early on, how did you end up in 1979 in Caligula, which is basically... <laughs> Produced by the the guy who founded Penthouse, it's X-rated. Yeah. It still probably would make some people blush. How did you end up in that? Well, for the same reason, actually. I, I thought, you know what, that this it will be a learning curve for me. It'll it'll teach me how to you know how to perform certain things right. in front of the camera. <laughs> because when you're working on a film, and and this is where film differentiates from the, uh, television, the apparatus behind the film, the set the trailers, the producers, the publicists, the marketing, the, all of that Bearmouth thing mm-hmm. is incredibly intimidating. And, and in those days, you know, it was even more intimidating. It's changed so much, and I so applaud the change, and I'm thrilled. I just wish it hadn't taken so long. But, you know, you'd walk on a set as a, as a young woman. You'd be the only woman in 200 men. I remember saying to a man one day, can you imagine every day of your working life, you walk into a room full of 200 women and you're the only man. Every day of your working life. And, the, and he went, oh, yeah, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> it just hadn't Doesn't dawned on them. Yeah. It was the world they lived in. So they never really, you know, took it and never really understood. So it was a very intimidating environment. It could be. And I was always seeking for liberation, I guess. And, and I think that doing Caligula was a part of my search for liberation of, of some sort. And just to come back for one second to what you're talking about with sort of not even self-aware, well, just completely lacking self-awareness, uh, uh, some of the bigotry and things that you, I think, ran into in those days. I just rewatched this morning the, is it Michael Parkinson? Uh in 1975, it's the most awkward interview you could possibly watch. And to your amazing credit, you went back in 2006 and talked to him again, and he was still going on about <laughs> boobs. I know, you know? I know. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I know, Michael. He never learned. He never learned. <laughs> but, like, that was not such an unusual thing to have uh, the focus of, of... I mean, when you are one of... When you are the one woman in a, on a set of... 200 people, did you often find people behaving like we're finding out Donald Trump still behaves? No, I have to say no, not, no. 
I mean, at the time I did the Michael Parkinson interview, I was a stage actress. Mm -hmm. I wasn't a, a film actress. And I was a serious stage actress. Mm -hmm. I, I never wanted to say, oh, but I'm a serious actress. Right. But actually, I was a serious actress. And I always felt I wouldn't worry about what people said about mm -hmm. me because I always felt I could show them who I was through my work. Mm -hmm. and, and as long as I had that up my sleeve, I'd right. be okay. You know. No, I, I, would, I never experienced... Oh, actually, I did once, come to think oh. of it. I'm not telling you. No, but what you're talking about a sort of sexual yeah, harassment. Yeah, sort of sexual harassment thing. That yeah. did happen to me once when I was visiting someone else's set, actually. Mm -hmm. I was sort of sexually attacked, if you like. Oh, my God. Not, not, no, that makes it too extreme, but, you know, it was... Just aggressiveness. Yes, yeah. yeah. Most crew, really, were incredibly gentlemanly, for want of a better word, professional mm -hmm. is a better word, but it didn't stop the reality, you know, if you're especially doing nude scenes and stuff like right. that, you know. And everyone's, everyone would get hot and bothered if there was a <laughs> nude scene coming right, up, right. you know. But I guess things really, maybe in a sense, might have changed after your audition for White Nights when you were no longer single for, for too long after that, right? That was, was that where you first met That was Taylor where I first met Taylor, yes, absolutely. And yes. so, uh, um, and that actually, from what I, I was reading a quote of his that was kind of funny. You guys didn't immediately hit it off. No, I hate it. I was very cross with him when I first met him. Because he was just cross. late for the audition. He was late, yes, 20 <laughs> minutes late. I was walking out the door, actually. It's funny. If he'd been five minutes later, maybe I wouldn't yeah. be sitting here right now. I don't know. But uh, this is how life is kind of wonderful sometimes. Right. No, I was very cross with him. Um, and I was sort of very grumpy through the uh, audition, <laughs> meeting, whatever you call it. Right. And then he said an amazing thing. He said, I've met you once before, you know. I said, I don't think so. You know, like, <laughs> no. Um, he said, yes, we met in San Juan Batista when you were working with the Teatro Campesino with Peter Brook, because I'd spent a year working with Peter Brook, and part of our, of our work took us to the Teatro Campesino um, base in San Juan Batista. Wow. And we worked there with Luis Valdez and the, and the Teatro and um, when he said that, I went, how does he know that? Only someone who was there <laughs> right. would know that. And he said, yes, I was a friend of Danny Valdez, who is Luis Valdez's brother. And we watched you, I came down and watched you guys rehearsing. And then I thought, oh, this is not a normal Hollywood. Right, he film. can't be so bad. He can't, <laughs> well, not that he can't be so bad, but he can't be the... A normal Hollywood, what my I would imagine is a Hollywood film director. Right, right, you know, right. this was very, very specific yes. and special. Interesting. The part that I get the sense really changed your career in a major way was Jane Tennyson on the first installment of yeah. of Prime Suspect. This was around ninety one. Yeah. And I just wonder how that came about, and if you can pinpoint why she resonated as much as she did when she came along because you know why did that part and that story and your performance click as much as it did was it a product of the uh, a case of great work and great timing or or what's your explanation for why we ended up with seven of them so far yes yes it was a, a it was a very successful series and it was all predicated on the first the success of the first i was signed to do three but only if the first one had worked mm -hmm. And the reason they thought that it maybe wouldn't work was because it was a woman in the leading role. 
without anyone else. There had been yeah. Cagney and Lacey, you know, a team, right. but one woman being the leading role in a TV series was unheard of yeah. at that time. So they weren't at all sure that it would succeed. It succeeded, I think, because it was very well written, mm -hmm. because it was extremely well directed, it was beautifully shot, I think I was yes. well cast, <laughs> or whatever the word yeah. is, and on top of all of that, and I think the why why the series went on to be so successful was because women had gone into the workplace in the mid-60s, into the professions. That was really when the breakthrough started happening. Right. Women started going into the um, legal business, into the medical profession, always been in education, and later on into the world of business business. Mm -hmm. but, but they were beginning to make inroads, and they had had to put up with a lot of shit. Mm -hmm. Including, by the way, the year that this came out was the year of Anita Hill. Uh, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. That's a very interesting fact. Exactly. They'd had to sh shut up and put up and shut up because that was the only way they could succeed. And they knew they had to swallow their anger and their pride and grit their teeth, mm -hmm. be polite and carry on. And they'd been doing that for, you know, 66, 76, 86, where 25 years. Mm -hmm. And now they progressed through their professions and they were beginning to become judges and heads of hospitals and heads of education institutions. But their journey had never been shown. And there it was yeah. on television, what they'd had to put up with. And they were so happy to yeah. see it and and so women really got behind the, the series but also it it was a very thrilling series mm -hmm. it was very dark for its time it was very hard-hitting so yeah it was it became very successful you said that quote was the thing that really ultimately taught me about film acting close quote Absolutely. even though it aired on tv it was the it was the way of going about things that you learned it was just having to work in front of a camera yeah. you know f 14 hours a day Six days a week, oh, my God, they worked so hard wow. uh, for, you know, three months. And then do it all again, you know, in another year, a couple of years, and then again and again. So I really learned, and, and I wanted to learn. I, I made sure that I was behind the camera, that I was beginning to understand lenses and what the camera can do. And I, I had some fabulous directors who mm -hmm. were very supportive and helped me in that. And just... You know, just practice, practice, yeah. you know, learn, hitting your mark and all the technical stuff. And, and I began to learn what Harrison had, yeah. <laughs> had had, all, you know. Because you're the anchor of this whole thing. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that really was the beginning of sort of this renaissance, right, where 1994 you do Madness of King George, you get your, your first Oscar nomination. And a steadier and steadier, you know, it seems like on film, bigger and bigger. Yes, but I also had, had, I'd had a great supporter in, on Showtime television. And they had, somehow, they'd picked me out. Uh, you know, my first role on Showtime was actually Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick, who gave me my first role on, really? on American television yeah. in a piece that Kevin directed called oh. Losing Chase. And actually, that gave me my first Emmy nomination. Interesting. And I think maybe I got a Golden Globe nomination. I can't remember. But 
From there, then I was given a series of really, really nice roles. Ayn Rand I played on Showtime mm -hmm, Television. Mm -hmm. We did The Roman Spring for Mrs. Stone on Showtime Television. You definitely felt the impact yes. of... Yes, and that was all, I think, before King George. So that, that, was, that was really helpful yeah. in, in sort of bringing me to the attention of the American public. The second Oscar nomination was for 2001's Gosford Park, and I know that you couldn't have asked for a better ensemble. And then a few years later, Julian Fellows goes and does Downton, Downton Abbey, Abbey and brings yes, along Maggie Smith. So I'm wondering, yes. was there ever any discussion that you might do that as well? Or were, No, no, no I, I, I wouldn't have wanted to do that. Because no, you were by but, now doing very well in film. Yes, yeah. yes, and I didn't want to get caught up in a, a long-running yes. TV series at that point. But you, you, were, you saw the show. No, I didn't yeah, actually. Yeah. No, it's I have to say I didn't. Yeah. I saw about I saw one episode maybe, yeah. but it honestly I think having done Gosford Park, I felt I'd I'd sort of you Been know there, done yeah. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, I know it was you know wonderful, and uh, the little clips I've seen, especially of Maggie, was fantastic. Sure. And I did get into it a little bit at the beginning, and then I went away and I lost the plot. Sure, if you yeah, like. it's a literally lot. lost the plot. <laughs> uh, I lost track of it. So I have to ask you how you first heard about the Queen and also if there was ever any doubt that you wanted to do it because it's now spawned so many other things yes. in your life. So how did that begin? It began actually, originally it began at a read-through of the last prime suspect I did and the producer, who's a wonderful producer called Andy Harris, when I did Prime Suspect, I would always like to get to the read-through. We do a read-through at the beginning. I'd always like to get there first, early, so I could greet the people coming in and, you know, make them feel like That's we're nice. in a family yeah. and, you know, and, and yeah. so I was busy doing this and Andy Harris was down the end of the room watching all this go on and, <laughs> and he was thinking, oh God, she's behaving like the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, wait a minute, she looks a bit like the Queen. <laughs> and then he thought, I know what, I'm going to do a film about the Queen. <laughs> so it came from that moment. Wow. Um, and then he presented me with the idea. Oh, my God. I said, no, no, I, that's terrible. Did you just think of her as like a stiff or what was the... No, I just, knowing how the British are about the royal family, it's, I knew it would be so dangerous yeah. if you got it remotely wrong or even getting it right would be dangerous. Right, right. Because it would gain such a lot of, you know, attention. Right. And I said, I don't want to do it if, if it's a mocking of... Because the British love to mock the royal family and they're constantly being satirised and sent up and, and, you know, quite sometimes unfairly, sometimes fairly, often brutally. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't want to be a part of something that is just pulling this family down. So I'll decide when I read the script. And they went away and literally two or three weeks later, put Peter Morgan, brilliant writer, mm. came up with this extraordinary script. And I knew I had to do it, no matter what difficulties it might lead me into, I had to do it. And what was the, the way in? I know you did a lot of prep, and but I, I came across a passage where you were talking about one clip that might surprise people as being particularly useful, where it's not sort of present day Queen Elizabeth, which is who we were seeing in the film. Right, yeah. But a different. No, it was a, I was really trying desperately to find my way in to this person behind the red velvet curtain, right. if you like. You know, that little head that's under the crown, take all of that away, and who is that person? And I found this little tiny piece of film of Elizabeth 
as a young girl, I think she's probably about maybe 12 or 13, something like that. And she's stepping out of this huge black car that's like a big black hearse. She's got little white gloves on, little white socks, little coat. And she steps out so seriously and she puts her hand forward to, to this big man who's standing there to greet her. And she does it with such discipline and not self-confidence, but, but a knowledge that this is what she's got, got to do and mm -hmm. she's going to do it as best as she possibly can. And there was something so poignant about that little moment and I just watched it over and over yeah. again. And that was sort of what I based my characterization on. And how early on did you realize you were doing something really special with that performance? It had to feel, I, I would imagine, like it was not your... You certainly weren't phoning this one in. I mean, where no. did, Not that you would ever... No, I, I, you know, a, a very important moment was the moment when I put the costume on. I was at, in my house, actually, in London, and I had some neighbours who I'm very close to, mm -hmm. and they were out in the garden, and I put my costume on, and I walked out. It was the... You know, her Balmoral outfit, you know, mm -hmm. the terrible kilt and that, and those awful <laughs> sweaters and the barber coat and the scarf and that, that look. Right. And I walked out, and as I walked out, I found her walk. And she's got a very specific walk. And I found the walk. And in finding the walk, and I was in the costume, I thought, oh, I've got it, I've got it. At <laughs> least I've got it physically. Right. You know, That's the voice amazing. was a whole other thing. Yeah. I've got it physically. And that was, that was important. What did the Oscar mean to you? Did it change anything after? I mean, but I guess, just first of all, is that something that you grew up thinking about or caring about? And, and when it happened, did it matter? I didn't grow up yeah. thinking or caring yeah. about it, no. But I, as I progressed in my career, and people like Maggie Smith kept winning an yes. Oscar, <laughs> I thought, oh, what's that all about? Right. I want a bit of that. Right. But I also knew that that was not going to be in my destiny because... I was never cast in the sorts of films that get nominated for Oscars and including the Queen, incidentally. I never imagined that that would be nominated for anything. So it was, it was very, very exciting. I mean, luckily I had been there twice before yes. by then and I think that was a great help in being able to enjoy the evening. It just is its own iconic thing, isn't it? Which is kind of indescribable. It kind of doesn't mean anything, and yet it kind of means a huge yeah. amount. You'll always be Oscar winner. You'll always be, yes, yeah. absolutely. And, and again, do you feel like there was almost, a, because of that, an injection of steroids into the career where the next few years, another batch of, of great parts, and you're back at the Oscars with The Last Station, you have Hitchcock, Trumbo, Woman in Gold. Not that you wouldn't have been playing good parts and doing good work anyway, but it just, you feel like you can, can you sense that there's an impact as a result of... I think, you, you know, you don't know, yeah. because you don't know what would have happened if, if, if it hadn't been my name right, called right, out. Right, right, right. But I do think it's helped. Yes, yeah. I do. I do, I have to say, yeah. And when you first heard that Peter Morgan had written this other piece about the Queen, what what the and blame, wanted you to you, yes, you, and wanted you to do it? Were, yes. What? Oh, I said absolutely not. <laughs> I did. I said no this way. Is nine years, yes. so roughly nine yes. years later. Yes. You had no interest. No interest. First? No, I didn't. Did not want to do it because I, I took. I mean, to this day, I'm still sort of slightly carrying that particular ermine robe yeah. along with me. But I was really trying to you know, move on from there, as proud as I was of, of it and, and enjoyable as well, but, you know, you've got to move on. So how did he turn you around? Well, I went for a... Re I said, I'll go for a... Re I'll read the play. 
knowing that at the end of the reading, I would say, that's great, Peter, it's brilliant, but I, I just, I don't want to do it. I just don't. I'm, I feel I've, I've got to move on. <laughs> and I did the reading of the play, and there is Peter Morgan, who's an amazing writer, Stephen Daldry, incredible director, Robert Fox, the top-of-the-line producer, most of all, Bob Crowley, who's the top theatre designer, I thought, and you're walking away from this? Are you kidding me? It'll never be as amazing as this. Right. You know, this is literally the creme de la creme, as they say, of, of theatre mm -hmm. in England. And you're going to sort of say, oh, no, I don't think so. Thank you very much. So at the end of it, I said, yes, of course yeah. I'll do it. And I'm very, very glad I did. It was a very different piece. Well, that's the thing, because everybody says, what's it like to play somebody nine years later? But at the same time, the no, first No, it was one, so different. Yeah. I wouldn't. I. I don't think I would have done it if it just been a sort of repeat performance right, right, right. of what I did. But it was so different, and it was a wonderful acting challenge. You know, having to go backwards and forwards in age and stuff. I like had that. the privilege of seeing it on Broadway, but I mean, for people that didn't see it on West End or Broadway, you are aging from twenty six to eighty eight. You're. It's. You're on stage for two hours, and the amazing thing to me, still, I don't know how you did it, is you will walk behind a dresser or something and come, come out, out as an old lady. Different, yeah. different attire, yeah. different posture, yeah. different... It's unbelievable. Yes, I knew when we, we'd we have to do some sort of really good quick changes. Yeah. Yes, and the other thing, of course, it's not linear. Right. She's 27, then she's 80, then she's 50, then she's 40, then she's 80 again. So I guess it movies... It goes backwards and forwards like that. Maybe movies prepped you a little bit for out-of-sequence stuff. Yeah, though, right? exactly. So yeah. <laughs> would, it might be harder for somebody who's only done theater yeah. but if someone could have only seen one of the portrayals of the queen the queen or the audience for whatever reason they could have only seen one which would you have wanted them to see i would say the audience why is that well because it um because it's the whole span mm -hmm. i would say that but now i'm thinking about it <laughs> maybe actually the movie is just you know it's so different the movie takes place over two weeks more or less Right. And the play takes place over 60 years. So that's a tough call. That's a tough call. I still think maybe the play. The play, yeah. Mm. Having come through both of them, it seems like, I don't know if you, I assume maybe as, as Dame Helen Marin, you've probably met the queen. Do you have any sense of what her thoughts are and also have your thoughts about her changed as a result of having inhabited her skin more than anybody except her? Yes, my thoughts absolutely changed about her having... I had to think about her mm -hmm. for the first time, to really think about what this person had done, which I'd never thought of before. It, it, you know, she was there, but it was sort of like Big Ben, you know. <laughs> it was there, and I drove past it, and there it was. I never thought about how Big Ben worked or, you know, <laughs> who cleaned it or, right. you know. Um, so I had to think about those things and really start delving into the into the mind of this person. So, yes, it made me considerably reevaluate her. In fact, halfway through my research, before I'd shot any film on the film, I wrote her a letter. Oh, wow. And I said, I don't know if you know, but there's this film being made, you know, and I hope it's not too intrusive. It's about a very painful time in your life. And I just want to say that, I've, and this was true, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't being sort of groveling, it was absolutely true, mm -hmm. my true experience. In the research I've been doing, I have to say how much 
I've grown to respect and, and, and indeed love you, but respect you above all. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get a letter back. Well, I got a letter back because you always get a letter right, back so from, uh, you know, her secretary <laughs> saying, the Queen has read your letter with interest. Right. Thank you so much for writing. <laughs> that was all I got. Right, right. But, but I was really glad I did it. Yeah, Because that's nice. I, I was glad I'd instinctively, it wasn't planned, I just reached out because that's how I was feeling. But when the film did come out and it was, a, you know, there was a, a lot of attention paid yeah. to it, I was really glad that I'd written that letter. Oh, that's great. And, and while we know that she never saw the play, we cannot say that she never saw the film. Well, who knows? So that would be interesting. But so meanwhile, you come through this... This now she has a TV series doing her whole life. That's, Peter, you is know. that right? Yes. Who's yes. doing that? Peter Morgan's written. I think it's on Amazon. I'm not quite sure what it's and on. And it's, it's a performance or it's a documentary? No, it's a drama. They're without you? Whole, no, without me, yes. Come on. Well, they're starting, you know, from when she was a kid, you know. Yeah, right. It's called The Crown. And it's as the audience, the film, the play the audience was, in a way, it's a way of investigating or portraying the history of Britain in the 20th century. Interesting. So um, through, through the monarch. So, yes, they did wow. ask me if I'd be in it. Did, they, no. <laughs> That's enough. Well, and I know that doing, how long between West End and Broadway were you doing the play? Uh, a year. So you, that's got to be six a grind, six right? Months. So yeah. you come through that, and I believe chronologically it was at that point that you went and did Eye in the Sky? Uh, probably, yes, yes. So that's quite a jarring change to yes. a very different unit. Yeah, know, definitely, kind of world. absolutely. What was yeah. it that... Although I think, no, I think before I in the Sky I did Trumbo. Oh, that's right. So I did Trumbo. Maybe and... between the West End yeah, and Broadway. Yeah, and maybe, no, I think I did the play after Hitchcock, but before Trumbo. I think okay. Trumbo might have been the next one, and then immediately after Trumbo was I in the Sky. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, that was that year, I think. Yeah. With Eye in the Sky, what aspect of it would you say appealed to you most? Well, the story and the and the way in which and and the inner story of the story, if you like. I thought it was an amazing piece of. I don't like the word educating the audience because that sounds boring, and it's a real thriller. It's a real yeah. nail biter. But at the same time, it does perform this function of showing the audience what is being done in our name. I like that element of it. And I, I thought the way in which all those elements, those pieces, cog together and work so beautifully. I, I thought it was an, a really wonderful piece of writing on an important subject. So mm -hmm. when I said yes, and if there's any conflict, that's the film I want to do, mm. it, was, it wasn't because I wanted to play that role. You know, in, in essence, in a way, it's not a hugely demanding role it's not emotional like playing Sophia Tolstoy or yeah, something right. I wanted to be in that film I wanted to be a part of that film to send that and message or yes. to provoke the conversation yes to provoke the conversation there is no message luckily right. and that's exactly. what I love about the film yeah. which interestingly is written by Guy Hibbert who wrote one of the best the best prime suspects oh my gosh I yeah, didn't yeah, put it together yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah now the New York Times called it quote one of Marin's finest performances close quote noting quote Marin has rarely been icier, close quote. What's it like to have to play a character who guards her emotions that much in that way? Maybe not even consciously. Well, I guess I had a little bit, little bit of training yes. with the Queen. <laughs> That's a stupid question, Scott. Yeah. But in a very different way. Right. A very, very different yes. way. I mean, the point about 
the commander, you know, the colonel, general, whatever, she's a colonel, I I can't remember her (laughs) rank, it's terrible, is that she's got to do her job. She's got to do her job. And it's what she's paid to do, it's what she's good at, it's what she's done all of her life, and she's just doing her job. Her superior in the film is played by Alan Rickman, who died very sadly so soon after. Uh, Can you share any insight on what it was like working with him? What his legacy may be as an actor. I wish I could, but actually in the f- making the film, we never crossed paths yeah, at right, all. Yeah, that's right, that's right. In fact, I shot all of my stuff before anything else was Had shot. you ever met or worked together elsewhere? I've kn- I knew Alan very well. You did, yeah. I knew him very well, yeah. obviously from our theatre scene yeah. together. I'd never directly worked with him. I would have loved to have worked with him. I'd, you know, been to see him in the theatre. I, I mean, I knew him extremely well. Yeah. And I thought, I think he's wonderful in the film as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, the last question, I guess, is just having, it seems, achieved what you'd set out to do back when you first started pursuing this path and really achieved so much of what any actor would hope to achieve. What is there left on your to-do list still? I mean, it seems like you obviously love the doing of it, but is there anything specific that you still hope to accomplish? Professionally? Yeah, sure. I want to win a Grammy. Really? Yeah, we got (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Unfortunately, (laughs) I can't sing at all. Well, you know the way around this for a lot of people, I think. You just have to do one of these spoken book narrations. Yeah. said that to you, I'll never win one. But, but it would good. be kind of cool, wouldn't it? it would Ms. Be very Egot, cool. yeah. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. Really thank you. It.